Hello, re-readers. This is Hank. Today, we're saddened but also honored to present a very special episode featuring Professor Devin Bevington, who passed away on August 2nd before this conversation had a chance to air. On July 1st, we recorded our very first Shakespeare re-readings with David Bevington, the famous Shakespeare editor from the University of Chicago. When I emailed Professor Bevington to tell him about our show, I was certainly not expecting anyone of his stature to have interest. But Professor Bevington was immediately generous and excited to find any and all ways to share his insight into Shakespeare, and even more his love of Shakespeare. A real tragic figure should be one which, with whom the audience empathizes. And I'd, for me at least, that Hamlet's and Macbeth, if it's, if it's just a story of a man who committed a crime and got punished, who's interested in that? You know, that, that's not telling us anything that we can take to our heart, but to deal with a man who could have been such a much better person than he is finally, and try to understand what happened. That's a, that's a good question to ask. And Shakespeare asks it beautifully, and he puts it in language that is so compelling that we have to think about what that problem is. Reading Professor Bevington's work in preparation for our episode was a great pleasure to me. And I encourage all our listeners to pick up any books of his from their local libraries. We hope that just as Professor Bevington has helped Shakespeare's words and ideas to live on, that this podcast and his books can also help his wonderful reading and ideas to live on themselves. And now, the full and uncut conversation with Professor David Bevington of Chicago about Shakespeare's Macbeth. So I'm going to start this with just a brief summarization of that I got from reading your several essays on Macbeth. So I think many people read Macbeth as a sort of fate story that Macbeth is almost like a modern Oedipus that he's driven by a lot of external forces like Mm -hmm. the witches, Lady Macbeth, but... I think you read a little differently and as characterized by mm-hmm. a phrase that I think was great that you used, character is fate. That's, of course, not my idea. That's an old idea, but it's a beautiful one. Yes. So I think the way right. you read Macbeth is Macbeth is actually the one that's driving every decision in the play and instead of right. a sort of modern Oedipus kind of controlled, manipulated by supernatural forces. Is that a valid way of describing your reading? Yes, although we can, we, can, we can start from there because then the question becomes, if Macbeth is in control, why does he make a, a choice which he realizes is a bad one? Yes, right? yes. Clearly acknowledges before he does this. Wonderful soliloquy when he's on stage alone, the king is in the bank, bank, banquet, he's going to go to bed, it's time to go kill him, and uh, Macbeth goes on about how this is Nature itself is against this, that angels are singing from heaven about the deep damnation of his taking off. So it's against the church and against all civilized ideas about killing anybody and then most of all killing a king, which is really quite an assault on on order and decency. And then he also says that uh, if you could look to history as people who've been able to do this sort of thing and get away with it, you don't find very many. But for the most part of 
people who kings who kill other people and whatnot ultimately end up uh, falling prey to their own terrible mistake. And it's, it's and Macbeth is an intelligent man. He reads history. He realizes that there's there's no way he can get away with this, and indeed there's no way he can avoid sort of the deep damnation which is threatening him with the moral um, condemnation of it is a, a perfectly awful thing to do. But that's what seems such an incredibly compelling argument. And there is there is his wife who's obviously pressuring him to make a choice so that they, they, she can enjoy the kingship with him. There are other witches, and we need to talk about all that. But Macbeth, and this is where I absolutely agree with what you say, Macbeth, is the one who has to make his choice, and that this is the point at which indeed character becomes fate. How is it that Macbeth is fated to do the thing that he knows will be self-destructive and evil uh, when he knows perfectly well that he shouldn't do this and that he's not going to profit from it, really? That's that's the, That becomes the wonderful, wonderful question. How does character take on that aspect of determining what one is going to do, even if it, even if one is aware that it is self-destructive. So that that then becomes a compelling question of the play. Why does Macbeth go ahead and kill Duncan when he knows that's the worst thing he could possibly do as a sin, but also something from which he will ultimately be destroyed himself? Yes, I think Macbeth um, is always aware of the consequences of killing the king. That's right. Yeah, and although circumstances kind of push him right. to that point of decision, even though they don't make him make the decision. Right. So this is the point at which the others that you're, you're talking about, people see the play as deterministic. Uh, it's inviting and attractive at that point to say, well, Macbeth is, he doesn't want to do this, but he's being pressured by his wife, by the witches, by circumstances. One could say circumstances. It does occur to him that it's rather eerie that uh, after it has, having learned that he's the Thane of Cawdor, being promoted by the king and so on, that the king, now grateful to him for being a great warrior, is coming to his castle, is going to spend the night there. There's not likely to be another occasion in which, which that will be so evidently the time to move, and his wife agrees with him about that. So they have a perfect setup, and then, of course, you can say, yes, that's true, and then the first Macbeth does succeed. Everybody is horrified of what's happened, but they assume that it will be one of Macbeth's sons that does this, or somebody else, or some of his servants. Why would why would Macbeth himself want to kill the king in his own castle? So, so in which circumstances become very pressing on him. This is this is his great opportunity. But but then he still, and any reasonable person reading the play will decide that well he should just. And by the way, importantly, there is there Banquo is there also as his companion, the one who wonderfully says in this soliloquy that sometimes the forces of evil come to us. The devil is there. I think the play very much accepts the people who believe that the devil is real. Banquo is certainly one. But the devil can come and make representations, and he's very potent as a tempter. It goes all the way back to the story of Adam and Eve. That's the whole story of Christianity, the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Of course, the devil is an incredibly suggestive, insinuating, powerful. How could it be otherwise that there's so much evil that's persistent in the world? It must be that the devil has lots of resources at his back and call. So, 
So there's there's Banquo with the one who says all that, and he said, but he says it in a philosophical way. He's talking about to himself alone out in the garden, in the night, and he says, uh, you know, I'm afraid that I'm worried that Macbeth doesn't think enough about that. That the devil can kind of tempt you, and he's doing it for malign purposes. And if what he suggests seem uh, attractive and so on, a, a truly wise person will turn away that invitation because you have a choice. Macbeth makes a choice. So that is, in a way, what is so deeply unsettling about the play. He is the central figure. He's made being an attractive man. He's been a fine nobleman supporting the king, fighting the king's battles and so on. People regard him with great admiration. He's doing extremely well. He knows he doesn't need this. But there is that temptation. So it must be that the free choice that Macbeth makes freely of his own determination, whatever the pressure is there, is something that occurs and emerges from him. And I think the play gives him so many opportunities to think about this, to turn the other way, to decide not to do that. And then he goes ahead. That's to give us time to realize that he is really making a considered thoughtful choice for himself, and it turns out to be one that he knows is disastrous. And that doesn't seem to make wonderful sense, except you've got to say, well, in that point, point the character is faith, and there's something in the character of Macbeth himself that make, makes him the person who will make that decision when it comes time to make this all-important decision that is more important than anything else possibly come to have to be going to have to be done. So... He, he makes a choice, but it is a choice that is determined in the sense that that is known in his character. And one reason one's very strongly tempted to agree that it is a determined choice because it has to do with the witches. The witches come on and they say, Pain of Condor, thing, Climbs later, thou shalt be king hereafter. How do they know? I know they have seemed to have worldly knowledge about the, the, the thing, uh, being the thing of Kodor and so on. If the witches know thou shalt be king hereafter, they know that this will happen. Now, that doesn't mean it means that they have control of it, but it means they have knowledge, divine, sinister, uh, spiritual, otherworldly knowledge. How could they have that knowledge about him if it is not because... They understand Macbeth and realize that this is a man who, when, the, when push comes to shove, will, will push the wrong button. That's just who he is. And they have that, uh, that supernal power to be able to read character, apparently, as witches, to know what's going on inside him and, and to be in touch with the worst part of himself that is uh, the one who's going to make the wrong decision. But the fact that it is, it's that that's in the play. The witches are right there from the very start and so on, and that shall be king hereafter. The fact that they know that that's going to be true and it turns out to be true means that, that not that they're in control, but that the thing is determined in him. And therefore, that's where the point at which character becomes fate. So the witches do seem to have supernatural power and they predict the fate of Banquo and um, his offsprings too. Yeah, and speaking of the witches, just what do you think is their role or purpose in the play? Well, and this is in terms of what I just said, I think they're there 
for the audience. They're very they're choric characters. They they sing as a group. They dance and so on. It's sinister and wicked and witch-like, but they behave as as chorus figures. They're like the chorus in an old Greek play and Oedipus the King and so on. And they express a cosmic view that it surrounds the nature of this particular story, this drama, which is that in a strange but inevitable way, what will be shall be. And for the audience to does this very interesting thing. They they put us on notice from the start that Macbeth is going to choose this. In fact, fact, we go and see the play now, we know how the story comes out. He's going to kill the king, he's going to suffer the consequences. What kind of suspense can you have with a play like that where the ending is known? Well, it's a different kind of suspense, but a very, it's a very real one. And I think Shakespeare loves it. He uses other places to ask the audience to watch something unfolding with horror, which they're told is going to happen and be inevitable and disastrous. And it's in the hands of a, of a the central character of the place that he has to make the choice and could, could could make the choice the other way and is thinking about that. But to know that he will choose the wrong thing, ultimately, uh, sets up a very strange kind of suspense that is that Shakespeare is just b- brilliant at. It's not something you see in every tragic play you read. It's, it's just a, a wonderful... And, and, it, and it invites us to think philosophically about that question of the character being fate of... What, what choices do we really have? What does it mean to have free will? When that's tied, of course, into the Christian story, because it's true in Adam and Eve too. Take the story of Eve as the Christian world interpreted it in the time of Shakespeare. They read this story of Genesis as one in which Eve knows that she should not choose to eat the forbidden fruit for the tree; it would be disastrous. But she's going to go ahead and do it. And again, the devil knows that that's what's going to happen. So it's a very old story. It's there from Christian terms, from the history of the story of humanity right at the very start. And that's the higher, there's a greater irony for Christians, like watching a play, which is set in Christian times, Christian ethic, is that 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 horror story will also lead to something which is quite blessed and remarkable, that Christ will come to atone for the sins of humanity, include the sins of Adam and Eve, the disobedience. And uh, where they've been chased out of, out of the paradise, they have nevertheless now offered salvation through Christ's sacrifice, which would not have been necessary had it not been for Adam's first disobedience and also of Eve's. So that's another way in which Christian view sees history as deterministic. And indeed, if you're Thinking of it from the point of view of a Christian, I'm trying to suppose what that is. I'm not talking about my own particular feelings about this, but if you think about this from the point of view of a Christian, you believe that God knows everything and knows the future uh, and determines that this is God's world. Things go as he intends for it to go. But again, that, that paradox of determinism and free will hangs over Christianity like this. Do we, because... God gives to us all free choice. But then, for example, Calvin, one of the great thinkers of the Renaissance, took the rather dark view that, well, that's of course true. Christ and God determined what would happen in the history of the world. It's all determined. 
but it, and it, it's God's will. But of course, it can't be said that it's God is responsible for people who sin and end up badly. It must be somehow that at the start of things, there are some people in the universe who are to be saved and some who are not. And it's not for us to question the wisdom of the Almighty and, and having made such a decision, but at least explains why it is that things that seem to be uncertain and so on are, are worked out in a deterministic way. So it's interesting you read Macbeth in those Calvinistic terms this way. The Calvin, Calvinism was being preached in England a lot during this period, very strong from coming from Geneva. A lot of the clergymen of the English church had been there during the 16th century when they were chased abroad. And that was a, it offered a very deterministic view, which is, again, not meant to be a pessimistic one, but because God is ultimately benign. He's ultimately in charge of the universe and things will work out the way he wants it to. But that means that some people will make a bad choice, like Macbeth. And that's too bad for them. Uh, it's immensely tragic. It seems we'd like to think it's avoidable, but if you take this deterministic view, it means character's fate. That was what was intended to happen, that the, the character of Macbeth is a study and what to make of a man who was born, where right, it was darkly determined in his brain, his psyche, his soul, that he would not be able to withstand temptation. That's the way he was made. You can't say, well, God made him that way. That's God's fault. Of course not. That's not allowed. So it must be that the devil is allowed to have that province in human behavior. And uh, the devil is just very prevailing with Macbeth. I think the play, I'm, by the way, I don't think necessarily that Shakespeare is trying to preach Calvinism in his, with this wonderful play, but I do think writing in Calvinist England during the early 17th century that Shakespeare portrayed this problem about what, how, to, how to account for evil in ways that were thoughtfully put forward by, in the English church during the period by, by preachers of John Calvin's persuasion. Yes, I think just seeing the the unfolding of Macbeth's bad decisions and also this tension between determination and free will are just definitely charms of this play. And this play is called The Tragedy of Macbeth. So what for right. you makes Macbeth tragic? Well, the categories that Shakespeare inherited from earlier times and so on have divide up comedy and tragedy. There's also being history play. That's a kind of a sideline. The difference between comedy and tragedy, by and large, outlined, is one in which things end unhappily in tragedy and, and happily in comedy. In Shakespeare's plays, that's by and large true. At the end of Twelfth Night, everybody's happy except Malvolio, and he's someone who can't be cured, but otherwise people are reconciled and happy to have found their, their long-last twins and so on. Um, whereas in tragedy... And that's true of all the great plays of Shakespeare and Coriolanus, as well as King Lear and Macbeth. Take Othello. Othello is a tragedy, obviously, in the sense that Othello kills his wife and then is just inconsolable, realizing it's important thing to play, but he realizes he has done a terrible thing and that he indeed cannot be forgiven for what he's done. Well, that's a very discouraging, unhappy note to take about it. I think that's true of Macbeth, who... Macbeth ends with some reconciliation because this king of Scotland is now going to be in better hands, it would seem, at least one can hope so. 
the political order is restored, and Macbeth was a threat to political order. So there's a sense in which order has has asserted its claim. But at the, on the personal level, of course, it is a tragedy, the story of a man who makes a decision that he wished he hadn't had to make, and sense can only partly understand why he made it this way. The tragedies are, of course, different among each other in terms of what was to make of the story of a tragedy. This uh, Hamlet, for example, perfectly wonderful play, it's a tragedy in that by the end of the play, practically everybody is dead, including, of course, Hamlet himself, but the former king, Claudius, his mother, <laughs> the stage is strewn with corpses, and that's one you would think, okay, this, that's a tragedy, everybody I look at is dead, uh, except for uh, Fortinbras, who comes in and provides the, the sense of restoring political order again in, in that play. But that's, again, the way in which evil has worked its way out in, in uh, Hamlet. He's much less guilty figure than Macbeth. He's not... He's one more tragedy of kind of sacrifice. Life is very unfair to him, and he deals with it uh, nobly and wonderfully. But Othello is, like Macbeth, is a real tragedy of character in which the central figure does the thing that will, uh, for which he falls and, and suffers terrific humiliation and self-accusation. Uh, Cor Coriolanus does well that way. King Lear, that works Quite well for King Lear to some extent. The king is his own worst enemy in turning on Cordelia. So in some of the plays, and McLear especially, the tragic figure learns something. King Lear learns that he was wrong to have turned against Cordelia. He's reconciled to her. That's really very wonderfully important, even though he dies. It's a tragedy in the sense that his life is ruined in ruins, and his enemies prevailed, and so on. But he is sorry for what he's done. That's a more complicated thing in the case of Macbeth. He's, he and Lady Macbeth are both very much alone in their suffering. And it's a suffering of having done something that is unacceptable, is overwhelmingly awful. And there's no way in which they can be forgiven. The play does not forbid, for, forgive Macbeth. Nobody suggests that. Quite at the end, there's a... We understand the king's Macbeth's um, head has been taken off and is being paraded by his enemies. So this is a tragedy of a man who was a bad man in many ways and suffered as bad men should. But um, but Aristotle is one of the great founders of this idea. What is the difference between tragedy and comedy? He said that tra you were tragedy. You don't want a figure of the play who is just a bad man and gets punished for it. That's too boring. <laughs> right? That's, of course, he should have. Whereas if you have a play about a good man who suffers misfortunes, that's, that's unhappy and leaves us wondering why we're watching this story. What you want is, and in some way, the force in the play that is leading to the catastrophe, to the overthrow, the unhappiness, is something that, by the way, Aristotle put it, a figure should have a, a, a tragic flaw, a hamartia, the, the, English, the Greek phrase for it. And uh, that, that'll help explain why it is that the a good figure is brought down by, by Hamartia. And with Macbeth, it works quite well in this sense. He is a noble figure, loves his wife, is admired by many of his subjects until he turns into a tyrant. But his Hamartia would be ambition for power and a desire for that that he cannot control in himself. So 
how do we go about understanding why there are some people are that way? Tragedy is interesting to us because we want to think about ourselves in terms of how to steer our way along in this puzzle of a world in which we live. What do we make of, of things that seem to be going our way or in some cases things that are turning against us? Why do we suddenly suffer a serious illness or so on? We need to understand our misfortunes as well as our goodness. And a comedy is a, the world of comedy is one in which everything finally works out generally. The world of tragedy is one in which things don't work out except that the central figure in many cases will at least have learned that what he did was, was wrong. That, that beautifully applies to Othello. That works pretty well for Macbeth too. So, and it's not just that we simplify it that say, well, I'm glad I'm not Macbeth. I wouldn't have made that choice. I'm a good guy and I, I would never kill a king. And so I guess I'm all right. <laughs> it's a more interesting tragedy if you're caught up as I think one is, I certainly am in reading Macbeth and the, and the personality of a, a thoughtful man who speaks so beautifully. Shakespeare's language is so incredibly beautiful that when I hear his soliloquies and so on, we listen, we reason with him, we listen to his pondering. It's important philosophical reasoning with problems. He's a thoughtful, intelligent man facing a real problem. And then when he makes this disastrous choice, we're, we're helpless in a way with how could he have done that, but we, but we come eventually to understand what it is that, and that that's the case where character's fate again plays into, I think, our consideration. That's Macbeth. That's, if we're to read this play with the thought that there are certain people who are indeed intelligent, brave, noble, who end up making evil choices, how do we understand that? If it's, not, if it's much too simple to just to label something of the bad world and say, well, there's just there's no there's no moral order. There obviously is, and it's there in this play. Why is it that Macbeth can't respond to it better? Well, some people don't, and perhaps in terms of our own philosophical thinking about our world and what we're our place in it, it's better to deal with the world that doesn't always play fair with us, doesn't always give us a kind of even playing field, right? Sometimes. The deck seems stacked against us. Sometimes we seem to be our own worst enemies. What do we make out of that? Well, if it's a problematic world, we better be prepared for that. We should have a kind of historical acceptance of the, the difficulties that we face and be brave about that and try to do what we can with our own limitations and the things that are prevailing against us to the extent that they are. So that's a, that, it seems to me, is a nice way of trying to read. But in other words, I'm saying, I think, a real tragic figure should be one which, with whom the audience empathizes. And I, for me, at least, that happens in Macbeth. If it's, if it's just a story of a man who committed a crime and got punished, who's interested in that? You know, that, that's not telling us anything that we can take to our heart. But to deal with a man who could have been such a much, much better person than he is finally and try to understand what happened, that's a, that's a good question to ask. And Shakespeare asks it beautifully, and he puts it in language that is so compelling that we have to think about what that problem is. Yeah, I think Macbeth, I mean, essentially, he's a man who makes bad decisions. So it's very important yep. that he is a man, that he's a human, that Good. we can relate to him. Yeah, and personally, I also agree that that is what makes Macbeth tragic. Great. How should we read Macbeth or any Shakespeare's plays in order to make the most of it? 
Well, um, I, this is going to repeat a little bit what I've been saying. I think one should try to read empathetically. I think one should read Macbeth not as a crime blotter about someone who committed crime and punishment, but to read it as a play in which we understand what's going on in the mind of an intelligent and noble and in some ways virtuous person and how things went wrong. To ask questions, to not go for easy answers. Shakespeare is very interested in getting to the bottom of problems that are not don't offer easy solutions. And if they don't, we have to be strong and do something about it. So it's very, I think it's very appealing to find ways in all of that to apply these things to our own lives. Not to read the play as a kind of an object lesson or a you know, moral, moral lesson or a moral, moral tale, but a story I've written by a great writer with feeling for human suffering that can enable us to apply to ourselves questions that are hard to answer but that need to be answered. Try to find questions that will make us we hope I'll be the best person we can be. So I, I approach Macbeth that way in a very positive way, finally, saying that this is obviously part of it, saying I'm glad I'm not Macbeth, at least I hope I'm not, <laughs> but that I certainly need to know about that, and I'm glad to have Shakespeare around to tell the story so beautifully that I want to read a play that is written with this intensity of language that you don't find elsewhere, and because that sharpens up these issues to a degree of intensity that one's not going to find elsewhere. Yes. So you've already touched on this, but I still want to close this interview with this question. So okay. what makes Macbeth and Shakespeare in general still important and relevant for people to read today? Yeah, we, I certainly have been circling around that the whole time. But the part that the, he writes so well, you know, there, that's, it turns out that he has a larger vocabulary by uh, 50% than any other writer in the English language. How did he do that? Well, he was a genius. He had access to a lot of good books. He, he had a very absorbing mind. He picked up vocabulary stories and so on from things he read. And he had a way of seeing into stories that would do what we've been describing here open up the human dilemma in such a way as to ask the painful and serious and important questions that we need to ask about ourselves. And so Shakespeare is really, is, I think in many ways, the things that he's credited for having been. A great writer does these things with a kind of, for one thing, with a kind of verbal intensity <laughs> that you don't find other writers. It's not a mistake that so much language has gone up from Shakespeare has gone into the English language, Right. We all know to be or not to be. Praise uh, like that. Um, all the world's a stage. He's he's memorable. He's, he, what he says is so succinct and so brilliantly encapsulating uh, truths that it keeps coming. The words he uses keep coming back to us. So that that I think is one reason that English Shakespeare prevails and the writer that we really need to pay attention to. Yes. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck with this project. I'm glad you're doing this. Thank you so so much for your thoughtful responses and time. Great to talk. Have a wonderful day. Bye bye. You too. Bye. Professor David Bevington was the distinguished service professor emeritus in the humanities and English language and comparative literature at the University of Chicago, where he taught since 1967. He was also the chair of theater and performance studies, taught by fellow Shakespeare scholar Harold Bloom. One of the most learned and devoted of Shakespeareans, he specialized in British drama of the Renaissance, 
and edited and introduced the complete works of William Shakespeare in multiple editions. After accomplishing this feat, Bevington was often cited as the only recent scholar to have personally edited Shakespeare's complete corpus. In addition to his work as an editor, he published studies of Shakespeare and Marlowe. Despite formally retiring, Bevington continued to teach and publish all his life. Most recently, he authored Shakespeare and biography. In addition to his preeminence among scholars of Shakespeare, he was a much beloved teacher, winning a Quantra Award in 1979. We are honored and grateful that we were able to add Professor Bevington's wonderful voice to our conversation.